Welcome to the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. This is the first part of our full interview with Bruno Meyado, where we discuss payment trends reshaping the Treasury landscape. In the episode of today, expect to learn what is happening in the payment space lately, what B2B payments, real-time payments, e-invoicing and ISO 2022 are, how Bruno sees the changes affecting Treasury departments, and like always, much, much more. This episode is a must listen. We loved discussing with Bruno about the latest changes in the payment industry, and clearly there is a lot to take away. We hope you will enjoy the episode. If that is the case, and when you're thinking about how you found our podcast, chances are that it was through word of mouth, social media, or a recommendation from your favorite podcast platform. And this is our only request to you. The best way you can support the podcast is to head to YouTube and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Corporate Treasury 101. That will mean the world to us and help more people learn about Treasury. And with all that being said, please welcome Bruno Meado. Bruno, thank you so much for coming on the Corporate Treasury One Pass podcast. Thanks for the invitation. Very good. So we're going to tackle a lot of new things that are coming up for treasurers and specifically from the bank perspective and also advice for treasurers out of that. So there's a few topics we said we were going to go through. There was the B2B payments changes that are coming up, e-invoicing, ISO 20022 and SEPA real-time payments as well. So a lot to cover, but it's Corporate Treasury 101. So we'd love you to just break down some of those terms for us first. So starting with B2B payments, what's happening in the space? Okay, no, absolutely. Uh, and it, it really requires the, the necessary time to explain uh, what is the trend. But let me just say that uh, today you and me, uh, when we go to the shop, we have a seamless experience. And what does seamless means? It means that you, you decide to buy something and you have many means of payments and they're almost all digital these days. You know, the amount of cash being used is being reduced. It's not convenient. Uh, of course, now the question is how many wallets do you need? How many uh, electronic wallets? Um, you have your bank accounts. Uh, and so this experience actually is enabled by different means in which you are paying for it. Uh, and on the consumer side, in most of the developed countries, that's already a reality. Now, during COVID, you had uh, business buyers who were used to have, uh, let's say, an older way of buying goods and even large ticket amounts, uh, 50,000, 100,000 euros worth of uh, goods that basically realized that during COVID, they had to get into a more as well digital way of doing this. And so the sentiment of buyers in businesses started to change to say, well, maybe I'm okay to buy a larger ticket item through a digital experience. Except that it's not so simple because when you use a credit card, well, the credit card works great uh, if you're buying uh, 1,000 euros, 5,000 euros. But when you start to get into large tickets, then it's not so convenient. Limits come to play. Now, of course, the cards are developing to grow in terms of the uh, ticket items, but basically you end up realizing that you need to come up with a new way of paying uh, large amounts, where in the business to business space, the way that things work in corporations, and I, had, I happen to have an experience in procurement, which uh, taught me a lot, is that you have a procurement department who has to manage the process of how do I ask for a, for a requirement for goods. I evaluate different companies and at the end I make a choice. And that means that the procurement officer in support of the business is managing the process of selecting what I buy, whether it be t-shirts for the military, whether it would be a helicopter, it goes through a process. And this is done through a procurement system most often. Procurement systems of there's, let's say top 10 procurement systems, most managing most of the procurement. But then when they decide to buy, they're not the ones who are actually deciding to pay. That's information that uh, goes often towards the ERP, which receives the information and then pays out when 
the treasurer as well and the way that the treasurer wants this to be done. So when you come up with a digital experience, you can see that it's not the same as when you're a consumer than when you're in a business. You have different roles, different uh, decision-making authorities, different validators. And so the, the, the biggest evolution is that businesses want a digital experience. And uh, Gartner, for example, is defining that 80% of business-to-business -business, uh, purchases uh, will be done digital by 2025, um, for example. And we believe that uh, as well, the, uh, the trend is strongly, especially on small businesses, paying to big businesses, but this can continue to large business to business. So that's, that's the trend. For example, in France, they will increased 41% the, uh, the, the sales, uh, digital sales uh, from 2019 and 2023. So it's, it's growing fast. Maybe just let me explain as well that when we say digital, it's not just about the payment. It's about the way you receive the invoice that tells you this is what you have to pay. It is about how you process that invoice to read what the invoice says. And it is how do you actually instruct the payment without having to retype the whole payment. So a digital B2B payment is not just I pay you electronically. It is I get an invoice, I read it. I verify that is the right information, I'm able to reconcile, and I'm able to pay out the amount in the best possible way. That's the, that's the trend in a nutshell. We see some industries going faster than others. And, and let me say that um, while B2C is the first area where things happen, so you go to the e-commerce site and you buy for your shoes, you buy your shoes, the next step was that these same businesses uh, which were selling to consumers said, well, I actually have a business uh, segment and I need to extend this capability to the business segment. So this is one big group of companies that are actually saying, well, I do this in B2C, I want to do this in B2B. But so they're already departing from a current setup and they need to extend it to the new reality of differentiating that the one who buys is not the one who pays. Another set is clearly corporations that are only selling to businesses, uh, selling uh, specialized equipment or speci specialized uh, construction products. They're only selling to businesses. Well, this is the fastest growing area is the small business owners. So I deliver goods for a construction site. Uh, I don't know how much they're going to need because they actually will get delivered a certain amount. But at the end in the construction, they will end up getting required a bit more cement or a bit more gravel or a bit more, a bit more things. So you need to manage the way that you send an invoice with an updated amount, the way that the company is going to have to sign. Yes, I received so much cement. And then the ability for that information to reach the ERP system to actually send the payment and tell the driver the payment has been received. Mm -hmm. So that's an area that is growing fast. Um, I believe that's where we have a lot of work to do. And lastly, but not least, is that once you do that, you don't only want to sell your own product, but you realize that in order to have a bigger marketing impact, you need to sell your product plus some supporting products. Imagine you sell a truck, well, you sell the parts, but maybe you need to sell the insurance. Well, then it means you need to start creating something we call a B2B marketplace. And that it means you sell your product, but you sell the products of others. That adds another layer of complexity, but it opens another, another set of opportunities in, in, in the market. So these are the trends that we're very excited about uh, because it really is transforming and lowering the cost for companies and, uh, and improving the, uh, finally, the economical activity of countries. Bruno, that's a lot to unpack. I love that. So to come back on one of the things you mentioned at the beginning, uh, the buyer is not necessarily the one who pays. Our procurement department, and let's say I'm a total newbie in the corporate life, not involved in the how to actually pay discussions. Like, is, do they just negotiate price and set up an exact product, but they do not look at all that, how it's actually going to be effectively done, typically the invoicing. Maybe I suspect they have a, a play in that. Like, how to actually get paid? Do they not talk about it at all, or how does it work? Well, I think every corporation is different and right. industries change, but 
procurement tends to be um, in control of some of the payment means. Mm -hmm. When you come specifically to card programs, um, using uh, a, a card uh, payments, oftentimes procurement is in the lead of that. Uh, of course, the issue is that not all your suppliers accept the cards, so you need to complement with other types of payments. Mm -hmm. Financing is in the charge of the procurement as well. So when you are giving terms, and when you're giving terms, you have the opportunity to probably provide some type of uh, factoring, so selling the invoice to a third party. Oftentimes, it's procurement who is in the lead. Okay. But of course, something that sometimes is that the key for a lower cost, more efficient payment is in which data do you dispose to make the right payment. And in that case, procurement has the upfront relationship with the supplier to ask and to impose or to require the data that you need to make the most efficient, low cost and error proof payment. Mm -hmm. So we need to link more and I think that's another a big trend and I hope something that can accelerate is how procurement gets data and gets invoice structured data. How can that be used by treasury to make the most efficient and low cost payment? Mm -hmm. But that requires talking to each other. Right. And so uh, as an example, I went to see uh, uh, a procurement department very close to me <laughs> and I asked them all these questions. And they said, yes, indeed, we've actually launched a uh, transformation program of procurement. We replaced our systems, we uh, redefined our uh, supplier journey, and we came with this uh, single identifier for procurement that we're able to exchange all along the process. And my next question was, did you speak to Treasury? I said, well, not really. <laughs> so I went to see Treasury and they said, well, we have this transformation journey as well. Great. We replaced our ERP, we're in the latest uh, of the ERP systems, and we came with our unique reference of uh, uh, ordering number mm -hmm. in which we are actually sending our payments to our clients and to, our, to the suppliers. And then I realized that in fact, they all had chosen a different unique reconciliation. So instead of benefiting from a unique customer <coughs> journey for the supplier to go through procurement and then go through the treasury systems, we still were using different references and not making it taking advantage of the data that procurement is collecting to uh, improve the supplier uh, databases. Now, I'm sure that there are a lot of companies are doing it correctly. Huh? This is just a, an example where if procurement works on their own side and um, treasury works on their own side, we will not take the most benefits out of uh, the changes that have to be done in the industry and the digitalization of payments. Yeah. And, th and that's a bit the reality. Some treasurers, get the chance to work transversely, others don't. So um, that's uh, as well a fact in the, in the market. Yeah. So let's park this one because we definitely want to add back it, especially on how to actually solve that. Because once you've completed the transformation journey, you're like, okay, we need to find a way to talk to each other. Let's come back to this one a bit later on. You mentioned the companies and where the transformation comes from, like where, where the demand come from. It's like COVID who played a role some um, companies that were selling to customers and like started to selling to businesses as well. They were like, okay, I need to have the same capabilities. I'm curious to know about the companies who were mostly B2B, but became B2C as well. I think about all those merchants' uh, websites that you can see right now. I can order my BMW directly from the BMW websites. I don't necessarily need to go to a retailer. So those companies that used to be selling to distributors are now also selling to B2C. And how does that transformation happen when they're like, okay, we just, uh, we're going to do a letter of credit or we're going to do a check or like with whatever means of payment they were using between companies. And now they see that they need to support all those um, plethoric amount of payment systems that they did not so far. So how does that actually affect those businesses who wants to go B2C from B2B? Well, to be totally honest, I haven't come across that many, the typical okay use case is I was in the B2C and I have to extend to B2B. Okay. So for example, you're selling uh, sports equipment and all of a sudden you have the schools wanting to buy you equipment. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't seen as many probably because of what you say is that when you're selling to consumers, you have to offer basically the local, more local, more, uh, uh, in fact, all payment meet means that you uh, have available to in order to increase the chances that you get paid. Now, 
what happens uh, is that you have gateways that exist today where they're able to integrate all the payment methods that may exist. So for example, if you go to France, you have to propose uh, uh, checks just as in the US. Right. You cannot do it without it, um, but you have to as well uh, still collect cash. So you still you have to have means to collect that cash. And of course, you provide cards and cards today have a predominant role in, uh, in, in, in C2B payments. So you could do with cards most of the times, but it depends which segment you're in, which country you're in. I'm a strong believer on, on direct debits because uh, it still is a very simple way to to get uh, to collect and to trace and to have being control of the collection, especially when you pay uh, monthly payments or, or recurring payments. But I'd say exactly because of what you say, the complexity of consumer payments is greater. So I see more often business corporate selling to businesses, selling to distributors and asking themselves, should I not go directly to the buyers of my distributors, especially on the business to business side? Right. And that transition is a bit similar to what you mentioned before, right? So you go from B2C to B2B, all of a sudden you've got to issue an invoice. A lot of these companies have never done that because it's just right. a credit card collection. Indeed, absolutely. And, and it's not just the invoice, but in fact, what's amazing is that often these teams are very lean. They don't have a lot of people. So if you have to produce an invoice, um, uh, and we'll come that to the invoice topic because there's big changes coming in, but you have to actually chase, have, has the company paid me? Have I reconciled automatically that the company has paid me? Can I keep giving goods to this company? Are they up to date with what I've been providing? So uh, for example, in, 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 in Spain, we, we helped a company who was selling to smoke to professionals uh, in the beauty uh, segment. And their concern was to say, well, I'm, I'm giving them a lot of product, but I can only take so much risk as at giving me them product and waiting for the payment. So the earlier I know who paid me and how much it was paid, the more I have an up-to-date view on how much it's outstanding and I can continue giving them more product, right? It's a very basic uh, idea, but at the end, what, what we looked at is how can you actually have an automatic reconciliation on the payment, whether they go to the, to pay by check or by card or by some other, or, or cash, is how to make sure that that information goes straight into the ERP and updates the position of every single client in terms of outstanding, uh, uh, outstanding payables, right? Or receivables from the company point of view. Yeah, right. So move us into e-invoicing, which is what I think you alluded to there. So there's some new regulation coming in. What should treasurers know about that? Yes, well, in fact, uh, you mentioned treasurers, but oftentimes, and it's very interesting, uh, it's only the tax department which is aware of this <laughs> regulation, which is, which is pretty sad, and I'll tell you why. Is, this regulation exists uh, since 2014. So it was, it was the EU uh, 2014 55 EU, just to, to say, and it actually says we will start implementing electronic invoicing on all government uh, purchases from federal to state, uh, provincial, and that was implemented already in 2014, but with a different date for implementing it on all business to business um, purchase, and that's in Europe, right? Now, the dates, uh, it was Italy who was first on this one, Turkey had done it before, but uh, Italy implemented it already uh, uh, earlier on a specific model, but all countries in Europe have to go through that. And, and why is that? Is because the government wants to uh, digitalize the way that uh, invoicing is done and they want to have declarations of VAT to make sure that there's not a lot of fraud happening out there. And so they make this mandatory. And that means that if you want to pay another business, there's no way around it you have to receive a electronic invoice that contains mandatory data where you're gonna actually uh, receive a copy, but the government will get another copy. Meaning the government will always know what you sold, what was the VAT in it, uh, what product was sold, and so which company was to sold to with unique identifiers. And so it's extremely uh, standardized means and format of sending an invoice 
and how you send the invoice through which channels. Uh, in Italy, it all goes through the government. There's no uh, direct uh, connection, but in other countries like in France, it will um, allow for a direct uh, sending to the counterpart, but as well a copy to the, to the government uh, system. And so this is going to come into place uh, now, I would say, in the major European countries by 2026. That's the new date. So France was scheduled for 2024. They realized, I think, the amount of change. Now it's 2026, Germany as well, the Netherlands, and smaller countries will go live in 2025, uh, like uh, Croatia, Slovakia, Lettonia. Uh, Spain is scheduled for 2025, but they, with the elections over there, that may take a little longer, so I would not confirm that is the case. Belgium will be as well in 2026. So we'll see that this is going to happen uh, going ahead. And, and why is it difficult that it's only in the tax departments is that, yes, there is a tax topic. But what people mm -hmm. fail to realize is that today we have a completely separate process from sending an invoice. And you say, it's like you send the bottle to the, to the sea and you, <laughs> and you don't know when you're going to get the payment. So the opportunity for Treasury is how to actually one, make sure that the data in the invoice reaches the ERP because that's where you have the most structured data uh, available to make the payment. How do you actually take that data and issue the payment instruction, either through a host-to-host -host connection so that you're in charge of that data, or even on an electronic channel for smaller businesses, you could avoid to have to re-enter the data of the invoice. So basically, you can carry it through the electronic channels. That's something we, we've built at BNP Paribas, is how to actually get the invoice data, populate the payment, have it ready for validation. And so these are the opportunities to save some time. There's some, some information as well that shows uh, that, you know, if I take France, there's between two to three billion invoices a year. Uh, that's a lot of invoices. <laughs> the average Good. cost of processing an invoice is 10 euros. That's a lot of money. Uh, when you add all the workload, yeah. all the workload, okay. uh, oh, scanning or or um, retyping or uh, processing, and um, we believe that there's at least a thirty percent cost gain for companies to um, implement a digital invoice processing mm -hmm. end to end. Uh, so that's a lot of thirty um, percent of gain of time. Now, does it trans translate into cost savings? Probably, there's a bit more cost savings to be made. Mm -hmm. Uh, but so there's an enormous opportunity to make things more efficient um, and uh, that invoice, in fact, if you think about this in concrete terms, it means you have a, a European format with some still country differences that will always be, uh, for example, identifiers for companies. In France, it will be Sirene. Uh, in Spain, I forget what it is, but it's based on the tax number of the company. Yeah. And so uh, you have unique identifiers, you have uh, reference data, you can add reconciliation data, and uh, at the end, this is uh, uh, mandatory data about 30, 30 something fields and other fields that are available to add more information, right? Mm. Now, these 30 something fields are the same, half of them are pretty much the same that you need to make a proper payment. Not only that, but if you make sure that the invoicing uh, channel is, is, is safe coming through the government or from your counterpart through the uh, channels that will be there, you will be able to be uh, certain that the invoice and the account that is mentioned in the invoice is the right account and reduce the risk of invoice fraud, which is one of the biggest uh, costs today in, in companies today. You receive an invoice, you don't know if the account is the right one. And so that invoicing coming in will allow to lower the, sec the security concerns, improve efficiency, digitalize the whole process, as long as you link it to the payments, right? So again, it's not just a tax topic, it's uh, how do I get the invoice? How do I pay the invoice? How do I reconcile it? Um, how do I choose the right data for the invoice? Hmm. So the two things are certain in life, death and taxes, I guess, pretty much applies here. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And there was, I mean, actually, there was a very interesting statistics in the European Commission website 
so I cannot doubt it, which was saying that somewhere we are losing about uh, 4,000 um, uh, euros of VAT uh, a minute in Europe. Okay. Uh, that's what they consider is the uh, tax avoidance on VAT in Europe today, which is a lot of money. Yeah. Pretty much a lot. So in a time when governments need to collect a bit more taxes and to pay a bit more national debt, I think they are <laughs> probably looking at this as a possible way to recover a bit. Definitely. And so what's the role of Treasury here? Um, because, I mean, what's the role? How does it impact Treasury, first of all? So this thing of getting the, the data from the e-invoice from your procurement and ERP departments and then being able to execute the payment from that. So it's, it's just basically we're in the middle of the chain and it's like being able to collect the data and process, process, sorry, process the payments accordingly. Or is there anything else that the Treasury Department has actually to take into account? Well, already what you mentioned would be great. Okay. But, but <laughs> to we, begin with. But we are in, in, in different scenarios. So some treasurers where we come and explain, um, uh, they, they say, well, this is the tax department's uh, topic. I'm not involved. Mm -hmm. And, and they actually ask themselves, why should it be my topic to solve, right? Right. So that we get a little of that. Normally they actually, they, re they rethink this through and then they call us afterwards to continue the discussion. <laughs> I, that's what I've seen. Other corporates are actually having their management realize that this is a big thing because it's a big change. And they're actually designing who's going to be the transformation manager in the organization. And some cases, not a lot, but I've seen the treasurer being dedicated the transformation manager, which seems to them like a, a huge task. And it, it is true, but at the same time, it shows the importance of treasury to be in the middle, because again, treasury will have procurement on one side receiving the invoices, but on the other side, you have marketing uh, issuing invoices, so or sales teams, right? So you have to look at it from a true organizational and corporate perspective. And I would say that the uh, the strategic question about this is you could do, I guess, the minimum to make sure that the data that you send out to your customers to get the payment in, or the data that you receive from your suppliers in the invoices, that you're actually making the most of it. Uh, we'll speak later on about international payments, but there where you need structured data and international payments, well, make use of invoicing regulation to already get the right data in the right format, in the right place. But the next strategic question, and this is something I learned from Mexico and Uruguay, where they've already gone through this invoicing journey, Interesting. is that you cannot actually get paid if your counterpart, your customer, is not actually being able to receive a, an, an invoice in this format, in this structure, and you cannot pay your supplier if you do not have that invoice. And that means that some companies, if they're big, and if they, are, they want a, an industrial and secure process, they may have to think whether they should not get involved in equipping their own suppliers to send them the invoices. I'll give you two examples. Uh, in, in Uruguay, we have a supermarket, which is uh, huge and is buying, uh, it's the main supermarket, right? And, and they have chains. Well, they realize that if they do not give a tool for their, all their suppliers to send them the invoices, this is going to become a very difficult process. So they actually enable all their smaller suppliers in Uruguay to actually use the same tool to issue the invoices of what they sell to the supermarket. That enables... Now, do they make them pay for the service? Yes, they do. But does it lower their costs as well? Yes, it does. And actually, some of these uh, sellers uh, to, to these supermarkets, I, I happen to, to meet some of them, One, some that are actually, in the, uh, for, for example, just uh, selling blankets and, 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 and this type of um, home, home stuff. They were very happy because they lowered their complexity to invoice their counterpart. And not only are they encouraged to use the tool, but they actually can actually choose as well the terms and the delay to get paid, right? So you can start automating how you actually communicate to your big um, client as to when do you want to get paid. Of course, the longer you have, the more discount and the other and the opposite, right? In Mexico, an example that I had was, uh, imagine you are using uh, your own truck drivers to deliver goods to your customers. But sometimes there are, there's an increased amount of um, demand coming to the holiday season. 
and uh, you have to hire external uh, truck drivers. Well, a truck driver is still a business. If you want to pay him, he needs to send you the electronic invoice in the format that is required by the regulation. What do you do? You build an application so that your own ad hoc suppliers can actually invoice you with the right information. So you can see that it's not just, I will stop at the payment side, but I have to think about how am I going to enable mm -hmm. my clients, my suppliers to, uh, to manage the invoices. The bigger the business, the more important these reflections. And to take it a step further, because now it's, it's super interesting, Bruno. So I'm curious to know, how about factoring? All the businesses that rely on factoring for funding or part of their funding, they also need their factoring service provider to be able to process all that. Absolutely. So it's not only corporates, it's like the whole chain of payments and financing that has to be changing them. In fact, factoring is probably the first uh, concerned business uh, uh, about the invoices. They work all, it's all about invoices, right? Mm -hmm. Invoice purchasing, invoice management. Exactly. So absolutely, they have to make these changes. And again, it will uh, lower costs, but before you lower the costs, you have to invest in revising your end-to-end -end, uh, end -end chain. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so that's, um, that's, that's a big change coming. Uh, but you could see that, uh, you know, the change in invoicing is big enough the change on B2B sales is, is big. And then the change on international payments to paying suppliers is big. But they all share one thing. It's, it's, it's the data that mm -hmm. goes in the invoice, the data that goes in the payment. And it requires to think uh, in advance because you have two choices as a corporation. You will end up doing this project in piecemeal and not being able to see the master plan and so you will have the investments, you will not maybe take all the rewards, or you can try to create your master plan and try to do this in a way that you make the most out of it, you simplify the most out of it, you decrease the costs for your organization. Some companies in the US which have operations in Europe have asked me, uh, okay, what's going on? And I just tell them, <laughs> the last thing you want is to do this project for France because the French were the first going live in, in new setup and then have to do the same project again in Germany when you're after and, and in Belgium later on, you will end up doing several projects with the same purpose, especially if you're looking at centralizing your operations, uh, rationalizing your systems, maybe rationalizing your bank partners. Uh, you need to look at the master plan, at least regionally. I say it's too ambitious to think globally maybe, but regionally you have to look at it in, in, in one master plan. Mm -hmm. I, as, as you said about the transition plan for Europe, I mean, my biggest question there was, and you, then you said, well, you can't get paid if your supplier's not on it or, or vice versa. Then, well, if different countries are moving at different rates, it kind of just depends on where are your suppliers and your customers. So if I'm a, a French company that's get, got customers in Germany, then I could say, hey guys, you've got to move on to the invoicing, otherwise I can't get paid this year. And Germans are like, well, no, our master plan is 2027 to have this implemented. Yeah. And then the French company's like, well, I can't get paid until 2027 then, if that means like this. Or like, it's well, always going to be a negotiation. No, right? it's, it, uh, or I mean, is it? no this, this is well seen. So th that's, okay. that's not a problem at till, so till 2028, uh, where everybody has to do this. So mm -hmm. 2028 is the utmost deadline. Okay. okay. But so you still have some exceptions because of exactly what you say, you know, where uh, if you are, uh, if you have a supplier in, in, um, in Germany, well, of course, he will be able to, he can receive an electronic invoice, but he, if he can't, he should still get the regular uh, invoice, right? So you still have some flexibility when it goes beyond one country, uh, but this is just temporary. Now, the um, VIDA is the, is the other regulation, which is being voted uh, this month. Maybe it has done, I have to check my notes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's being uh, voted now in December. And it is looking at the uh, way that VAT is declared as well on, on, on cross-border transactions beyond Europe as well to as well do the same thing is control a bit the uh, amount of VAT that has been generated. And it, it actually brings that deadline of 2028. So again, by 2028, everybody has to be done. Mm -hmm. Right now, most countries are going at the same year, 2026, a few, maybe 2025. Let's see if they make it. 
And if not between now and 2028, it will be done in, in European countries. But then what about outside of Europe? Again, we live in a globalized economy. China being one a huge trade partner with Europe, the US being a huge trade partner, are they also expected to be able to, or there are also exceptions after 2028 to be able to manage the UK? Is the UK moving yeah, into the system no, as well? We don't see any sign on the UK, uh, nor in the US. What we saw is made basically countries like India, Turkey, Mexico, uh, Brazil, we see it moving. I think countries where you have um, maybe more um, more of a concern of the declaration of, of taxes, things okay. those were the ones who moved first. Hmm. Uh, Europe came after. That's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I don't want to play anything. <laughs> <laughs> but indeed, it's, it's not going in a, in a let's say common way. I think it's it's uh, it's all in the objectives as well of transparency and uh, fight against corruption. So these are global values, uh, but it's not going at the same space everywhere. Uh, I think local and domestic trade is like number one concern uh, and then regional. So in Europe, we have a regional regime. So that's why it makes sense. But after, I mean, this is a cost on the businesses as well. So uh, everybody has to judge at what time they they impose this, right? Mm -hmm. And these are costs. I mean, at, at one uh, public event in, in, in France, the company Orange was in mm -hmm. telecoms. Yeah. They were mentioning the multi-million cost of doing the project to revise all their databases with all the data that they need to issue the right invoices structured, etc. So these are, depending on the quality of your data and the state of your data, this can be actually significant projects mm -hmm. to, to be carried and, and they have a cost. It's, it's a true. They have benefit, but they first have a cost. Yeah. Then same question for a French company that has a UK customer base or a, UK, a US customer base. Are they expected to? They're not obliged to, no. Okay, but they can still receive payments in the other system yes, in the yes. traditional way. Payments will still be payments. Okay. It's more the electronic invoice. Okay. that they are not obliged to uh, receive or to send. Okay, uh, to, but then they have parallel uh, systems then. Well, potentially. They potentially can have yeah, uh, systems. It's also going to drive its own complexity as well. Yes, yes. Yeah. So there's a way to try to simplify that. Okay. Um, for example, when you are, um, uh, the way that the structure that we've set up for BNP Paribas is that we help our customers which have multiple uh, systems because that's the other thing companies have often several ERPs producing invoices so you cannot do this project all at the same time on all ERP systems mm -hmm. so what we built is a, uh, a, a two-step approach one is a system that allows to receive the invoices as they are whether they are PDF or whether they are CSV files or whatever into a common platform that translates this in dematerializes this in the right format that checks whether you have the required data that you need. And then it sends it to the second step, which is a, a, the type of companies that have now, and there's a few in the market, but we've chosen one, which has a role of compliance with the taxes. And so it says this invoice is going to uh, Letonia. These are the requirements. It goes kind of like a clearing system. In a clearing system, you send the payment. If he doesn't have the right information, it gets rejected. Same thing. I send this to this partner. He checks. It has the right information. It goes through this uh, route. I send it to the right counterpart. This other invoice, it goes to Spain. In Spain, they added an extra piece of information. Watch out. This invoice doesn't have that piece of information. You're going to UK. In UK, there's no specifications. Okay, let's go. Right. Mm -hmm. So basically, you end up having to have an, an additional partner in the in the chain, which is going to play a role of um, compliance towards the tax authorities. That was going to be my next question. What platform is all this happening on? Is there an EU regulated platform? Because you said a copy goes to them. Are there third parties coming in or are you doing this in, in the traditional banks as well? Or? So the uh, reality is that countries still have specifics. So, uh, for example, in France, they came up with a, a great platform, Corus. The government. Uh, the government. Okay. That's just France. In Italy, they have another platform. I don't remember the name, but they have their own platform. Every invoice goes through that platform. In Germany, I still don't have a, a view on how this is going to happen. But you can see that uh, there's always this country. Uh, at the end, tax authorities are today very country-based. Huh? Yeah. There's no regional tax authority. So mm. you will have multiple set of platforms that have to receive a copy of those invoices. 
so that adds complexity. But you can see that if you build your systems to send out an invoice to the different platforms, you have to look at this as a regional project because you may want to simplify how you send flows to platform X, platform Y. Uh, depends where your treasury is, where your ERP is. Do you have one? Do you have several? One per country, one centralized? That's really the, each company and each situation will be different. If you're a telecom provider, probably you're very local, that's fine. But if you're a good producer that is having several factories across Europe, you have maybe several uh, systems, unless you've gone to the all the way to a centralized uh, treasury operations, right? So, Bruno, Sam and I consider someday launching our own software. Is creating a fintech in invoicing the, the place to go then? Like aggregates everything? Is that, is well, I met some of them. I met a lot ah. of them and we have partnerships with some of them. Um, That's a good a question. Late. A bit late. Um, certainly something we learned from speaking to other countries and other uh, parts of our bank, which have gone into invoicing, like India, where BNP is present in Turkey, certainly managing an invoicing platform is extremely difficult because you have to stay up to date with the regulation and it always changes right so certainly it's a it's a business in itself that requires to have people who are expert on managing invoicing the second point is that in some of these government guidelines they are having so many requirements as to security and uh, of course um, robustness and uh, all certification requirements, which I think were underestimated by the industry of fintechs at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it actually uh, reduced the uh, business case of being certified by the government. And so not all uh, are getting certified by the government to play a role that is called the PDP, uh, which is basically a certified mm -hmm. provider of this type of uh, service, right? And so the, the game plan has been there's some invoice companies which are fine, but they will have to work with partners which are certified by the government uh, based on that information. And again, it's, it's more about uh, secu security, cyber security, uh, um, resilience, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So we expect, for example, in France, if we take it as an example, that there will be maybe 50 to 60 uh, PDPs for the whole country. Okay. Uh, which means that there will be uh, uh, there can be many invoice uh, software companies, but they will have to partner with one of these uh, companies to actually feed the government uh, uh, platform. No. Right. So it's it's a business that that gets fragmented. Now, the other question that you have to ask is to what extent the invoice uh, software has to be an integral part of your accounting software, mm -hmm. and to what extent can it be uh, separate? And to what extent is it separate to do sales and separate to do procurement? So again, it's about corporate architecture. Uh, do you do have one invoice system for your procurement to receive the invoices? Do you have a separate invoice system to send your invoices to your clients? How do you link it to your accounting system? Uh, should you expect your accounting system to do that job for you? So that's as well part of the uh, evolutions that are taking place, discussions that are taking place in different software companies. We partner with some of these uh, software vendors to provide our customers with ways to comply with the invoicing. But again, they tend to be challenging to integrate because then that means you have to open up a project to integrate a new piece of software to do one specific step of the process. So, uh, you know, it's a, it, it's a question again of a master plan for how do you do your business uh, and adapt to your uh, invoicing requirements. So I think that means we probably shouldn't get into the, the invoicing space, but, <laughs> but fair, that's totally fine. Bruno, talk to us about ISO 2022. What, what is that? Beyond the series of letters and, uh, and numbers, what does it mean and yes. how does it affect Treasury Department? Well, as I was still trying to tell my management, uh, uh, fortunately, uh, the format of international payments changes only every 40 something years. So this is a major change in the way that the uh, format and the structure of the data for international payments is, is shared first between banks and central banks. And so that in Europe for the Euro and for, for the GBP that has been done this year, 
So basically, the, these two central banks now communicate for payments only in a new format called MX, uh, which has different numbers. Uh, but at the end, it, it, you have to imagine that basically you go from a, a, a poor uh, format that was doing the job very well, and you move to a rich format, which means you have a lot more fields that you can call what they are. So, so just as an example, if you had um, to find the country in your message, you did not have a field that is called country. Now you have a field called country, so if you want to know which country this payment goes to, you have the field called country. So it sounds very simple, I'm trying to oversimplify, but I'm Perfect. saying XML allows you to do that, you have more fields, mm -hmm. uh, and that means it opens the door to other possibilities. So if you're making a payment on behalf of a company, so think about the uh, uh, all the centralized treasuries, that there's about, uh, according to PwC's recent survey, we have about a 70% uh, plus um, uh, strategy of large corporates that are setting up a centralized uh, payment factories. Mm -hmm. You basically have um, the ability to do payments on behalf and call the on behalf in the field that says, who are you paying on behalf? And mm -hmm. that allows for better uh, transparency of the payments, better uh, screening of the payments, better reconciliation of the payments. So these are simple benefits, but before they were not possible. So basically, the, uh, the, the format has changed between now central banks and the bank. Mm -hmm. Now, in November 2025, it has to change between banks and other banks. So what they call the many banks to many banks. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, today, across the world, we've reached, unfortunately, only a 15% uh, percentage of messages that are MX uh, made in the new format, right? Mm -hmm. So that's certainly far from what we, where we want to go. And so this is going to be a long journey. Um, BNP Paribas uh, today for corporate payments, we are at 80%. Other banks have as well similar amounts, but for the general number of banks, and again, there's about 11,000 banking entities across the world, about 450 banking groups across the world. Well, it's going to be a journey of uh, having to modify their payment systems so that they can produce new format with new data and uh, to be compliant. So 2025 November, all banking entities have to be able to receive an MX message and send an MX message. Mm. Now, what's going to happen probably is that at that point, for clients or for corporates that have rich data in their files already, because some are already corporates have already been ready for earlier than banks. Well, they will start using their rich data for international payments and some banks will be able to convey that data all the way through. And some other banks will not be able to convey that data through, which will create a problem uh, for, for some of the banks so, because they will be uh, uh, not being able to cope with that extra data. Now, to palliate for that problem, Swift came up with a solution called TMP, which actually is a platform, cloud-based, API-based, and all the builds and whistles that basically <laughs> Does allows it have AI? to... <laughs> Does it have AI? <laughs> uh, it will. It will. <laughs> Soon. Soon. Uh, and basically, uh, they managed to get the first message that maybe uh, MX uh, rich they have the same copy in the cloud so that it allows you to see how that message is modified along the way. And so if the receiving end, you know that some data has been lost, you can still recover that data, right? So that kind of pallies the problem. But still the requirement is that all banks are able to process in the new format. So that's the change for November 2025. Uh, uh, November 2025. Now, what does it mean for corporates? At that point, it doesn't mean, mean a lot for corporates. They don't have to do much, but what they have to be ready for is that by 2026 November, they're going to have to introduce some structured data in that format for payments to be able to go through. And the requirement has been discussed a lot in the interbanking community, and it has been reduced to, I think, a acceptable level, which means uh, only the um, um, address, the city and the country have to be 
called out in structure format in the uh, in the format. Now, structured address sounds like scary, but to give you just a, a reference that that comes from my team members who were kind enough to show me. Basically, when you use a, a map in Google or something, uh, when you enter an address, what you get is a structured address, right? And if you look at the source code, you will see the structured address. So it's just something that is used by you, by me every day, mm -hmm. uh, but basically has to as well be available in a in the, in the message so that you can actually um, clearly know which country, which city. Do they win the backs screen the messages? They look everywhere for the country. Well, now they will be able to use just the field that says country mm -hmm. as more efficient. It's going to be more, more correct. And we're going to ask less less unnecessary questions or stop payments for the wrong reasons, right? Yeah. So that's the big change for, for ISO. Now, um, again, it only happens every uh, 40 years, but it opens a set of opportunities for the next 40 years. So if you want to see all the benefits in the first year, most likely you will not see them. Mm -hmm. This is about creating an opportunity for growth in use cases that bring more structured data, which feeds better databases to apply maybe AI, that's clear. <laughs> <laughs> it allows to maybe add some use cases for remittance data so that you can actually reconcile better. No. If in an industry you agree on some remittance data, you can do that. In Belgium, we've been used, we are used to the remittance data structured uh, communication. Yes. So in Belgium, when we speak about reconciliation reference data, they say, well, that exists for a long time, but Belgium is unique. True. It doesn't exist anywhere, right? True. So if you can replicate that Belgian example to an industrial industry level, segment level, mm -hmm. cross-country level, you can have the same efficiency of a direct um, reconciliation. And making the link to the two previous topics we touched upon, um, you know, that leans perfectly into just that, the B2B payments, how to have the proper data, how to make sure everybody's on the same page, but most importantly for the e-invoicing, like all those data will be able to get through the invoicing that is now completed on digitally, linking with the ERP, having the proper things, having the proper data to link and have an ease of reconciliation. It's, it's a bit like all those changes arrive at the right time then, because we're going to be able to embrace this whole environment of changes into the processing of payments. Well, they arrive at the right time, but in what you said, imagine how many teams are involved in a corporation. Tons. So you need to coordinate that. Otherwise, you'll end up doing A and then find out you have to do B and have to redo uh, your work so that you can actually accommodate for the next change and the next change. So mm -hmm. it's an exciting time for treasurers and banks and consultants, I think, because there, this has to be looked at <laughs> with the right lens, with some distance. Sure. Of course, pick the right consultants. <laughs> important recommendation. Important. Um, but um, something I, I wanted to add as well is uh, on the international payments. Let's say that the uh, opportunity, of course, is you have all of a sudden this uh, highway of data that is possible that you just have to figure out what you want it to use for. Is it for fighting fraud, for fighting anti-money laundering? Is it for better identifying your payment factory members? Is it for reconciliation? So we still need to work on the use cases. But one of the clear use cases where we feel that this is uh, the right time is to move from a cross-border payment to a cross-border instant payment. Instant payments today are already rich formats, same uh, XML, maybe not exactly the same standards, but not far. And so what we see as a clear opportunity, and we start to, start to do that already, is to go from uh, corridors that allow to start the first leg on an international payment and the last leg on an instant cross uh, on an instant payment. So that gives you the cross-border instant experience. And if you look at the statistics officially from SWIFT, basically we know that today 80% of the payments are credited to the beneficiary bank uh, within one hour. Mm. People don't know that. It's great performance. The problem is that once it's at the beneficiary bank, it still takes more time to credit the account of the beneficiary. Statistic-wise, we look at 60% of payments are credited within the same hour, which means 40% of the payment take longer. Sometimes there's compliance topics, of course, so there's uh, compliance not just from 
from the individual, but compliance requirements from the country perspective, the currency perspective. So there's good reasons for that. But so what we believe is that if you're able to do the first leg of international payments and the second one to go into a local instant clearing, you will be able to breach that gap of the last uh, 40%. But to do that, you need to know upfront what data do you need to go into the instant uh, payment system mm -hmm. and uh, succeed your instant payment locally, right? Yeah. So that's the next step and that's a very uh, clear benefit when you pay abroad you will have the notification, it's done within a few minutes, maybe, yeah, maximum one hour. That's, that's a bit the idea. Yeah. So it's overall in the RTP space then. What other like trends are you seeing coming along? So what is this use of structured data to be able to help with clearing and whatnot? What else is coming in the overall RTP SIPA space? Well, it's, a, it's the right question at the right time. So um, the, uh, let's say that there's the whole world and uh, to give you a perspective on that, um, today there's already about uh, 200 million uh, instant payments a year, um, billion. On these payments, uh, most of them are actually in India. Most of the payments are in India? Interesting. More than 50% of that. Of global RTP payments are in India? Yes. So to, to just pause on that, because it's the second time you mentioned how India is advanced on this. How come? Like, how come India is that much at the forefront of the payment transformation journey? Well, in invoicing you mentioned as well. Yes. Well, I think their government has been clearly uh, very strong at advancing the country in the next uh, generation. And we speak about India as the next uh, um, uh, growth powerhouse of the yeah. world yeah. and I believe that's probably right um, so government policies then we had COVID which accelerated things mm -hmm. and we had a very good technology country with a lot of technological savvy people who had a application to pay an instant clearing system to use and there was COVID which uh, made sure that you know people were paying more digitally instead of using cash and coins etc so you put those three together and the adoption of instant payments in India has been a, a clear success wow. a European example just to say that I think is the same method is, is, is Spain Spain in Europe I mean I don't know how much people know about it but it's a great success of instant payments there above 50% now. So there's more instant payments than regular uh, payments today. And that's again, same, same recipe. They have an app, they have an app that is uh, cross, uh, uh, it's basically the same app used by all banks. Uh, simply they can have their own colors, but it's interoperable. So it's one app for the country called Bism. They have a great clearing system, which uh, is very forward looking and uh, with Europay. And the banks pull together as a team and says, let's create this uh, instant payment and, and BISUM adoption across Spain. And that has been a success. Um, and it's a great experience for the rest of Europe. Now, in the rest of Europe, we have the same initiative with the Wero, which is the new commercial name. Have you heard about Wero? I haven't. I'm taking this. Uh, no, didn't hear. Been out of treasure for too long. <laughs> 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 it's not treasury. This is not treasury. This is actually. Uh, consumer payments. Well, that's okay. why. That's why. Yeah, that's why. So it's fine. Yeah. That's why. <laughs> no, but the original name was the initiative was called Epi. Okay, you probably heard about I've, that. I've seen that. All right. I've seen so, the icon. All right. Yeah. So that initiative is again trying to re recreate the same recipe, which means we will standardize a common application between to start four countries: mm -hmm. the Netherlands, Germany, Belgium, France, and Luxembourg. Five. Mm -hmm. And uh, they will uh, actually have a common uh, user experience, uh, banking on the existing systems, which we're already doing very well. Uh, basically, they acquired the existing local systems and they will create a, a unique application experience linked to instant payments. And we expect this to be a true uh, change, game changer in the adoption of instant payments. Right? Now, just to complete the story of India, so India is uh, it's representing most of the volumes. Mm -hmm. Second is actually Brazil. Okay. And we see in Brazil, in Bien du Paribas, Brazil, instant payments are just growing um, uh, very high with the rest of the community. It's called PIX, the, their system. And, um, uh, and third is China. 
you would expect China to be second, but non-China is third. So that's a bit the situation. This can change huh? by the time you listen to this podcast, maybe the <laughs> figures have changed. This is going too fast. Fair. But in Europe, what's, what's happening is that the European Commission, Commission has said, we want instant payments to become the new normal. A new normal means you use instant payments for everything from paying your gardener to, uh, to, to paying the, the bakery uh, or your peer. And to do that, they just came up with a text that has been agreed, and this is in record time. They almost never have this kind of regulation <laughs> in such a time. They came up with a text in November, agreed by uh, the European Commission, the Parliament, and they are going to vote this in February to have it uh, go live in, 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 in March, take 20 days to be okay. published. And that regulation, what it says is, Whatever you do in a SEPA Classic, you have to do that on a separate inst, same features, and you have to meet the 10 second maximum uh, speed between the moment that you click on the button as a user and the moment that the money is in the account of your counterpart and the notification the payment succeeded, which is today the case. Today, instant payments are taking on average one and a half seconds, but it just means that you have to really increase more the uh, the notion that you know instant payments is always going to work in a, in a fast model where you start and where it ends and more importantly they want to fight fraud one of the biggest deterrents for instant payments is the uh, fraud because once the money is gone from your account it is gone so what they introduce is a series of measures that actually says you are going to have as a user in you're going to be able to say how much instant payments you want to do in a day, I only want to pay for a thousand euros, or I want to pay. I only want to pay five thousand at the end of the week, and that's a lot. Huh? Mm -hmm. But what I mean is that you can manage the limits of how much you're willing to pay on instant payments, and uh, you're going to have to apply certain verifications of knowing that the counterpart you're paying is in the name of the account of who you think you're paying. So, if if I if I uh, send a payment to Guillaume and uh, and the name is not Guillaume, it's Erika. It will say, uh, it's not exactly the right match. <laughs> and you can still pay, but yeah. at least you know that it's not the right match, right? So that's a pay payment and payee identifier issue. That's not an instant payment issue. Whether the money arrives- You're absolutely right. I love it because that's exactly the argument I'm always saying. Mm -hmm. In fact, that kind of experience you have to have it in all your payment types, whether right. you pay uh, SEPA Classic, SEPA Instant, or international payments even more. Mm -hmm. So the notion of instantaneity has to be married with the notion of pre-validation. That's a key word that we need to keep in mind. It's not very sexy, but it's very important. It works. Pre-validation, <laughs> it means that instead of thinking that you made the payment and let's see if it works, mm -hmm. you actually pre-validate that it will work and it will succeed. When right. you pay internationally, it means you pay to India. You know that you have the right data for that Indian correspondent, Indian beneficiary, mm -hmm. that you know that it's actually the right person you want to pay or that it's closely the same name and that you uh, are complying with the requirements from the country when it comes to compliance and additional control. So why would you send the payment if you know that it's going to fail, right? Mm -hmm. So you pre-validate automatically that it is going to succeed. So somehow the banks are going to, and not only banks, but all payment service providers are, are going to have to create the ability to give the view upfront of what's happening. We built that in France and now in, in Belgium going live in February, a payment experience for international payments that basically tells you where do you want to pay? UK. Okay. This is how much GBP you're going to get uh, in the account of the beneficiary. We guarantee that. This is how much you're going to pay in terms of uh, exchange rate. It's transparent. This is the data that you need. And they will tell you, yes, that's, that's all the data you need or you're missing something. That idea is that you pay internationally, you know it's going to succeed, you know how much it's going to cost, and you know how much your counterpart will get in their account. That's the notion. Transparency, flexibility, and that's a pre-validation. Now, and what's in for the corporate, the only thing I can think of is interest rates. In a period where you want to be able to sit on your cash as long as possible, and potentially on the supplier side, the person you're paying as well, the fact that the payment doesn't get stuck for one, two, three days, depending on which region you are in, the fact that it can be 
in 10 seconds, definitely enables that. Like I don't have to pay D plus two, I have to pay at D and I can sit on my cash at a 5% yeah. interest rate for that much longer. Yes, so absolutely, that's a benefit, but I would say it's more about predictability. Most often when I speak to treasurers, it's not so much the speed, it's, it's not whether it's one hour or two hours, it's that I know it will take so much. <laughs> Interesting. And of course, many of the mistakes that I see in the industry about payments not going through are not very um, good reasons. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's a matter of uh, questions going back from the last uh, leg in the correspondent to the next one to the next one. So what we're able to do with pre-validation is to know that all requirements along the chain are met. And what we're able to do with TMP, which is this uh, idea of a platform of Swift, mm -hmm. is that we're able as well to get the question back to the origin without having to go uh, person by person by person before it gets to the origin, right? So these are evolutions to make payments more uh, more efficient and more correct mm -hmm. every time we, we make them. Huh? And so going back to the instantaneity, the regulation that will be voted in February, because that's very important, has uh, uh, as well the, um, the requirement for all payment service providers in Europe. And so everybody who has an, a license to make payments and which has a, a SEPA payments today to implement SEPA instant within a given time frame. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, within nine months, they have to be able to receive. Uh, within 18 months, they have to be able to send. Within 33 months, non-Euro countries mm -hmm. have to be able as well to propose instant payments, SEPA instant payments. Uh, so this is going to be a major as well uh, requirement on, on many service providers, which uh, maybe today they don't have a use case for instant payments, you know, it happens, but it is a, it is the ambition of the European Commission to make sure that instant payments are used uh, uh, as much or uh, with no discrimination of using it or, or not. Pricing as well, aligning the pricing between SEPA normal transfers and SEPA instant transfers. Interesting. Indeed. So that's, uh, that's, that's coming ahead and that we expect is going to improve, but I still believe that is the, the common application, the uh, interoperable oper uh, application in the hands of the consumers, which will still be the key uh, game changer to adopt instant payments.